Well, good morning. Before I start, I want to take a moment to uh, embarrass my parents. It won't be the first time. It has, it's not the first time. But today is their 57th wedding anniversary, and so I want to congratulate them. I had some snarky comment, but I'll just let it lie and just say I love and appreciate you for modeling love and commitment for 57 years to us kids. So thank you. Today we're continuing our sermon series from Romans chapter 8. We're calling it Grade 8. It's one of the most powerful and profound chapters in all of the Bible. And uh, today the theme that comes out of this passage, it was just read by Jennifer, there are two primary themes. There's a theme of waiting and there's a theme of hoping. And they're really connected if you think about them, right? You, you wait for something, hopefully with hope. Uh, you, you wait for it. You anticipate it. You, you long for it. So I don't know how good you are at waiting, but I'm going to do a little pop quiz to kind of see how good you are at waiting. So as I throw out a couple scenarios, I'll give you uh, possible responses to the scenario. In your mind, you can choose which option that you would go with. The first is you're, you're driving on the interstate. You come to a toll booth. Maybe you're on the way to Kansas City and you're at a toll booth and the driver of the car in front of you, you notice is engaged in a long extended conversation with the toll booth operator. How do you respond? A, you're happy for them. (laughs) Two people are engaging in meaningful dialogue. Your heart feels good about this. B, you think of things that you would like to say to them. You, you, you really think about it, but then you think, oh, I should invite them to Sunday morning service. Or C, you lay on the horn and give them a gentle nudge with the bumper. Okay? Second scenario. You've been sitting in the doctor's office for over an hour. You're waiting. You have other things to get to. Or maybe it's the dentist's office. I don't know. Either one. You're, you're waiting. And, and how do you respond? A, you're grateful for the chance to catch up on some reading with five or ten-year-old magazines. B, you tell the other patients that you have a a fatal and highly contagious disease to enter the waiting room quickly. Or C, you force yourself to hyperventilate to get immediate attention. Okay? All right. Now, these obviously are silly and and, and pretty uh, uh, casual uh, kinds of waiting. And and we're used to waiting in our lives. We we know that there are times we'll have to wait in line at the, the bank or maybe wait in line uh, at the post office or getting your driver's license or whatever. We know we don't like it, but it's just kind of an inconvenience. We know it's part of, of living in this world. But there are also other kinds of waiting that are much more serious and much more difficult. Things like waiting for, as a single person, to see if marriage is in store for you. Or, or maybe waiting to have children and everybody else seems to have them, but you're praying and it just doesn't seem to happen. You're waiting for something that you haven't received. Or, or maybe you're waiting for a job. You want to provide for your family. You want something that, to feel good about yourself, to use your gifts and abilities in a job that's meaningful, makes a difference. But yet the call never comes. Maybe you're, you're waiting in a marriage for a spouse to change, but it doesn't seem to happen. Lewis Smedes, the author and theologian, puts it this way. He says, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame that we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting really is the hardest part of hoping. By definition, hope involves waiting. And, and the Bible has a lot to say about waiting and about hope. 
Let's begin with hope and make our way to, or begin our way with, begin with waiting and make our way to hope. So when we turn to the Bible, the God who is all powerful and all good and, and all wise and all loving, he encourages his people time and again. He says, wait. For example, in Psalm 37, 7, he says, be still before the Lord, the psalmist says, and wait patiently for him. There are examples in the Old Testament of God telling his people to wait. Abraham, remember the story of Abraham? 75 years old, childless. God comes to him and says, congratulations, you're going to be a father. And, and, and your son is going to be, um, be the, you and your son were going to be a great nation and, and bless many, many people for generations to come. But then he has to wait 24 years. Or think about when God comes to the people of Israel and tells them, you will be delivered from slavery in Egypt, but they have to wait 400 years. And of course, uh, the greatest promise that God gave his people in the Old Testament was the promise of the Messiah, right? That the Savior and the Redeemer from God would come. And so God's people wait. For generations, they wait. And eventually, he came. As the Bible teaches, Jesus lived and he taught and he did miracles He moved people. He saved people. And yet, his disciples, you can see it as you read the Gospels, they're not quite satisfied. They keep asking, what's going to happen next? They want him to do things the way that they want him him to do it. They want him to bring in a different sort of kingdom. They want him to overthrow the government, to begin to, to rule in a different way that Jesus and God had in mind. And so they're disappointed. And then he's crucified. And he's dead, and hope just falls. But then the roller coaster happens, and three days later he's risen from the dead, and hope rises. And before he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, they ask again, okay, we've been waiting a long time. Is this the time? Is our waiting over? Are you going to establish your kingdom now? Another quiz on waiting. Say you're on a family vacation, a trip, and you've been on the road for a long time, okay? And the kids are getting tired, a little bit cranky. You're getting a little tired and cranky. The snacks and the drinks are running low. You keep hearing the same songs on the radio no matter which station you push. You can only play so many road games. What's the question that keeps coming from the back seat? Are we, are we there yet, right? Is our waiting over? Is what we're hoping for now come to pass? Well, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, had one more command in Acts chapter 1. And to paraphrase, he essentially says, don't leave Jerusalem, stay here. Wait, because I'm sending something, someone very great to you, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes, the church has started, and people now have the gift of the Holy Spirit when they put their faith in Christ. But that doesn't mean that waiting for the human race is over, does it? Paul writes in Romans 8, the passage that Jennifer read, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our, redemption, our adoption as sons and daughters the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, in verses 19 through 22, right before this, he says that creation, the universe, the moons out there, the stars, the sun, the, the earth, that they're waiting too. He says that they're waiting for a time when things are made right, when Christ returns, when things are made new, including all of creation. Not just 
the rights being wrong or wrongs being righted, not just justice coming to those who seemingly get away with bad things in the world, not just an end to bad things happening to good people, but also a time when the world itself is made new. You see, the Bible teaches that since the fall, not only did we as human beings fall into sin and disorder, but the world fell into disorder, too. And what that means is that earthquakes and tsunamis and deadly blizzards and tornadoes and floods and hurricanes, these were not a part of God's original plan. And so Paul says the earth is groaning. He uses the analogy of a a woman giving birth, waiting for the birth of something new and wonderful and, 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 and fantastic. And so we wait along with creation. Aren't we waiting for a day when our bodies don't grow old anymore, don't get sick, don't begin to break down or fall apart, don't eventually decay? Aren't we waiting for a time when we no longer struggle with personal weaknesses or bad habits or, or nagging sins or the things that we just get frustrated with ourselves that we just can't seem to change? Aren't we waiting for that time when we're made brand new? Paul says, who waits for what they already have? Good question, right? What do you hope for this morning? What are you waiting for? Maybe you're in high school and you're waiting for it to end so you can go to college. Maybe you're nearing retirement and you're waiting for that day when you can do what you want to do. You can visit family and friends. You can travel. You can pick up uh, hobbies that you set aside. Maybe you're waiting for someone to come home who's been deployed in the military overseas. Possibly you're waiting for a raise from work. Or maybe you're simply waiting for the service to end so you can go to lunch. I don't know. What are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? Forty-three times in the Old Testament, the people of God are commanded, encouraged, wait on the Lord. So it seems to be a pretty important point. This runs all the way through the Bible. In fact, the very last words of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, the next last verse, John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We're waiting. We're waiting for him to return. We're waiting for things to be made new, for us to be made new. Now, the obvious question you might have running through your head is why? Why does God made us, make us wait? If he can do anything and he's loving and he's good, why does he make us wait? Why doesn't he bring relief? Why doesn't he bring justice? Why doesn't he bring... Uh, solutions to our problems? Uh, Why doesn't he give us the things we're hoping for? Why? I I can't claim to completely understand that, but I believe that in part, at least, to paraphrase a writer named Ben Patterson, what is going on is this. What God does in us while we wait for what we hope for is as important as what it is we're waiting for. Back to the scripture. Paul says at the beginning, that while we're waiting for God to set everything right, he says there's going to be hard times. You're going to suffer at times. You're going to uh, face challenges and obstacles. But the Bible also teaches that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Isn't that true in life, really? Think of it let's just with a student analogy. Say you're an athlete. And, and you, you work hard. You condition. You practice you, you work with your coaches, you work with your teammates, and there are going to be times inevitably when things aren't going to go well. 
Hopefully there'll be some successes, but there'll be challenges and failures and setbacks. But you hang in there. You keep persevering. You keep working. And eventually, character begins to develop. You learn how to support each other, how to encourage each other. You learn how to have each other's back. You learn how to keep fighting. You learn how to accept failure and success with grace. And that character, the Bible teaches, produces in us hope. And God produces those things while we wait in life. And what that means is that, biblically speaking, wait is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. Now, I want to say a word quickly about what biblical waiting is not. Biblical waiting is not passively waiting around for something or someone to come along that will allow you to escape from your troubles. People sometimes can say, I'm just waiting on the Lord as an excuse not to face up to reality, not to take personal responsibility, not to take appropriate steps. That's not what waiting on the Lord is about. For example, maybe a person um, struggles with financial habits, impulsive spending or refusal to save money or credit card debt. They get into this huge money mess and they might say, well, I'm just waiting on God to provide. Well, that's a nice statement, but waiting on the Lord in this case does not mean sitting around doing nothing and hoping that you'll get a letter from the bank saying, we're going to give you a credit of $10,000 just because you're you. Not going to happen. Waiting on the Lord is a confident, disciplined, expectant, active, sometimes painful clinging to God. It's a continual daily decision to say, God, I trust you and I will obey you, even though the circumstances of my life aren't what what I want them to be. And they may never turn out the way that I want them to be. But I'm betting everything on you. I'm trusting in you. I'm waiting, hopefully and confidently in you, no matter what. Waiting is the hardest part of hoping, isn't it? Now, there are three requirements that we should be aware of when we are called to wait on the Lord. The first is it requires patient trust. Seems pretty obvious. Well, I trust God that he has good reasons for telling me to wait. I may not know the reasons, but will I trust that he knows what he's doing? Will I remember that things look different to him because he has the perspective from eternity? So what the Apostle Peter wrote about in Second Peter chapter 3 He says this, but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. In other words, God has a different perspective. He sees things and understands things that we never will and never can. An economist read this passage and was quite amazed by it. And he talked to God about it. He said, Lord, is it true? That a thousand years for us is just like one minute to you. The Lord said, yes, that is true. The economist said, well, then a million dollars to us must be like one penny to you. The Lord said, yes, that is true. The economist said, well, Lord, will you give me one of those pennies? The Lord said, all right, I will. Wait here a minute. (laughs) Think about it. We wait and we hope. A while back, I read one of the most beautiful pictures of, of waiting um, that I've ever read. It's by a man named Henri Nouwen, a great uh, writer and theologian. Uh, he died a few years ago, and before his death, he wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And in it, he talks about some friends of his who were trapeze artists, you know, like in a circus. And they were called the Flying Rudellas. 
And one thing that they told him is that there's a very special relationship between the flyer and the catcher on the trapeze. He said the flyer is the one that lets go, of course, and the catcher is the one who catches. Makes sense. And he says, as you might imagine, this relationship is very important, especially to the flyer. When the flyer is swinging high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he must let go. He arcs out into the air and his job is to remain as still as possible and to wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him or her from the air. And this artist told Nowen, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. You know, some of us this morning are in a, a vulnerable moment, a spot in our lives. Something hard is happening, and we, we're waiting for something to happen, but it doesn't seem to be moving. And we've let go of what God has asked to let go of, but we can't feel his hand catching us yet. And our tendency at those moments is to do what? Begin to flail around, to grab onto anything, to try to do something. But the scripture asks us, will you wait in trust? Will you be patient? Waiting for what we hope for requires patient trust. That's the first thing. The second is this. Waiting on the Lord requires confident humility. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, he says, will be these two character qualities. Confidence, the confidence, that, the conviction that God is in control and is good and is able and a fearless orientation towards the future. And oddly enough, compared with that confidence is quietness. It's the opposite of arrogance and boasting. In a sense, it's the humble recognition of our own limits as human beings. Because you see, to wait for something is to recognize that I'm not in control, that I'm not calling the shots. The timing is ultimately not up to me. You know, if you think about it, in our society, there's a direct correlation between status and waiting. The higher your status, typically the less you have to wait in life. Isn't that true? But waiting reminds us that we're not in charge. Another quiz on waiting. This is especially true for most boys when they're younger. I know it was for me. I know it was for my own boys. What, is, what do most boys hope for and wait for but have absolutely no control over what happens? Growth, right? When am I going to get taller? When am I going to get bigger? When am I going to get stronger? I remember being so embarrassed when I was in seventh grade because my sister, who's a year younger than me, was an inch taller, and she's 5'5", five, five, okay? My parents told me, don't worry, you're going to grow. You have size 13 feet, okay? <laughs> just, just wait. You know, we hope and we long for things, and usually and ultimately, we really don't have control. God, our Father, tells us to wait. You know, probably the single most important activity for people in our walk with Christ to learn to wait is prayer. You know, a couple nights, uh, a, a couple nights ago, I was kind of awake and my mind was racing with several scenarios in my head, thinking about church some, thinking about kids, thinking about, you know, um, school, thinking about all sorts of things, thinking, you know, you, you, your mind gets racked up with all sorts of things in the middle of the night sometimes your brain just starts going you can't turn it off have you ever had that experience and you begin to sometimes imagine the worst case scenarios and there's a little bit of truth in that because because um sometimes bad things happen right but really all the worrying in the world has no 
uh, nothing to say about the outcome, no bearing on the outcome. With that thought in mind, I want to direct your attention to a story in Mark chapter 4. Jesus and his friends are on a boat on the ocean or on the sea, and a big storm comes up. Remember that? And Jesus is asleep. His disciples panic. They wake him up. And Jesus essentially says, to paraphrase, pipe down. And he turns to the storm and says, pipe down. Everything becomes calm. You know, Jesus experienced almost every human emotion that there is, right? He experienced anger, hope, sorrow, joy, pain, tiredness, etc. But there's one aspect of human life that God never experiences. You know what that is? Worry. God's never frantic. God never panics. He is never in a hurry, and that gets irritating to us who are in a hurry, who want something to happen and want it to happen now. But God is never in a hurry. He never panics. He never worries. Lastly, it's important for us to learn how to recognize God's voice. How do you recognize somebody's voice? You hear it a lot, right? They, they call you, you pick it up, you know instantly. It's your, your mom, your dad, your son, your daughter, your friend. Because you've heard it so many times. And the one thing you need to know about God's voice is this. God's voice is not frantic. When you hear desperate thoughts, when you hear panicky thoughts, it is not God's voice. Jesus said this. He says, my sheep will know my voice. It's the voice of the good shepherd who loves and cares for his children always. And the last minute, I want to say one more thing. Finally, waiting on the Lord requires inextinguishable hope. Paul says, for in hope we were saved. Hope that is seen, he says, is not hope. For who hopes for what is not seen? We don't always see the things we want in life, the things we hope for, do we? We don't always see healing of someone we love who has a disease. We don't always see justice in the world when seemingly people get away with things. We don't always see personal transformation in our lives. We don't always see peace when we pray for it. But the good news is that as we hope and as we wait, we do so with confidence and with humility, with trust and faith, because we have a God who is in control, a God we can trust. And so we remember that what we wait for is not more important than what happens to us while we're waiting. Because the one that we wait for Jesus Christ, he will be worth the wait. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We're grateful for your word. And Lord, uh, knowing your truth and applying it and doing it isn't always easy. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us to learn to wait for the things that we hope for in life, for the things we hope for for our world, for the things we hope for for our loved ones. And so, Father, help us to wait with confidence and humility, with trust, with faith. Help us to have a strong and biblical faith and trust in you. We thank you that you're in control. And we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Just respond to the word.